if we've felt offended in some way, you know, avoidantly attached people are probably going to be like, deuces, bye, no explanation. I'm just out, you know? And I think a lot of times people don't recognize that that's an attachment thing, especially with consistent rhetoric that I feel like I'm seeing on social media, like cutting out toxic people and getting rid of relationships that just aren't healthy. And it's like, a disagreement, though, doesn't equal something that's unhealthy or conflict doesn't equal toxicity. That, that to me kind of feels like one of the areas that I see it the most is wanting to back out of relationship, thinking that they are avoiding toxicity and taking care of themselves when really they're just playing out avoidant attachment. Welcome back to Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today, friend, colleague, and overall badass, Meredith Berger is joining me on the show to talk all about attachment. Something Meredith and I both have noticed is this kind of avoidant behavior that's happening as social media has taken hold of boundary setting and toxicity and how we can only do things that serve us and cut out everything that doesn't and how this is actually perpetuating avoidant attachment styles. And we dive in all as to why in today's show. We also talk about the fact that conflict is not equal toxicity. Fault doesn't matter, the heart model, and how to hold your partner's vulnerability. So if you have been swirling around in the conversation of attachment and don't know where to begin, we've got you covered. The only thing hotter than today's episode has been the weather in Denver. Holy shit, you guys, it has been hot here. Thankfully, Element has kept me hydrated and going through long hikes, playing with my dog, workouts, saunas, and anything and everything in between. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And if you want to get your hands on a free sample pack and just pay shipping, hit the link in the bio to have that free delicious element shipped right to your doorstep. Lastly, I've got to remind you about the wild woman retreat. I can't believe it. I cannot believe that I am finally hosting a retreat. It feels like something I've always talked about. And then the pandemic happened and we couldn't be in person and we couldn't be in each other's energy. And now we are going to meet in October in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, and I couldn't be more excited. If anything about today's conversation piqued your interest, identifying your attachment styles or your relationships, you want to deepen the relationship you have with yourself. You want to stop living as the person you should be and begin living as the embodied, complete woman that you want to be. This retreat is for you. So be sure to click the link in the show notes to get that application in. Do not sleep on this if it sounds exciting. Do the application, get on a call with me or Amanda, my co-facilitator, and get ready for your world to change in October. Until next week, enjoy the show. Okay, guys, this podcast has been talked about for probably two years between Meredith and I, we have been sitting down chatting about wanting to get on the mics. And I learn so much more from Meredith and just my conversation with her that I'm so excited for all of you to be a fly on the wall for this conversation. Meredith, for people that don't know who you are, can you give your little elevator pitch? Who is Meredith? Yeah. Hi. Well, thank you so much. Um, my name is Meredith Berger. I am a licensed holistic psychotherapist. Um, I'm licensed in California, Oregon, and Colorado. 
Um, and I primarily work with folks who are struggling with attachment issues and um, trauma recovery. Okay. How, okay. Oh my gosh. Everything just ignited <laughs> in my system because I love how often people don't recognize the early attachment wounding and how that's kind of playing out in their trauma, mm-hmm. right. Or mm-hmm. this, this early trauma that I might've sustained or this abandonment or this wounding I'm now, you know, we talk about rose colored glasses, but I'm wearing my trauma colored glasses <laughs> and perceiving go. a lot of things in that way. So maybe to just start and laying the groundwork with attachment theory, can you kind of dive into a little bit of what is attachment theory and what might some of the types be that people identify with? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that like different authors use slightly different words, like different, you know, different psychologists and stuff have slightly different words when they're talking about attachments. Um, But, you know, attachment theory essentially just speaks to the fact that the way that we formed relationships with our earliest caregivers is going to essentially inform how we are in relationships, um, in our adult life. So, you know, super easy examples are like, if we felt like really afraid within our like early childhood relationships, like we're going to have issues in our like later adult relationships, you know, like it's kind of like a super cut and dry basic way to look at it. But, um, usually the, the primary attachment styles that people talk about are avoidant, anxious, um, secure. And then this is the one that lots of people have different words for. We we can call it disorganized. We can call it anxious avoidant. We can call it chaotic. Um, but that last one is essentially kind of a mixture of anxious and avoidant. It's that kind of typical, like, I hate you. Don't leave me kind of, uh, kind of, I love you. Go away. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That I think a lot of people relate to that one actually. Um, and I also really look at attachment on a spectrum. So obviously like, uh, we can have different attachment styles with different people. So in my romantic relationships earlier in life, I was so anxiously attached. And now in my marriage, you know, I've been with my husband for almost 10 years. I am so <laughs> avoidant. It's ridiculous. I was like surprised. I was like, oh, turns out I got some avoidant in me. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like a lot of avoidant in me, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so, it, you know, it can, depends on where we are in life. It depends on what specific relationship that we're in. You can absolutely be in an anxious or, you know, have an anxious attachment style with one person and avoid an attachment with another, you know? So I think that's also really important to understand that nuance there that like, it's never going to be cut and dry. Yeah. Um, Diane Poole Heller does a lot of attachment theory work. She's a therapist out of San Francisco. And one thing I love, I'll actually attach it in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Um, she looks at attachment, less of a spectrum. I I suppose it's the same ideology though. And as a pie graph, right? Mm -hmm. So you take her attachment quiz and it kind of spits out your results of like, you're this much secure and this much avoidant and this much anxious. And I think it grants a lot of permission for people to be like, yeah, exactly what you said with my romantic partnership. I am super anxious. I need to know that I'm top of mind for them. I need to know I'm not forgotten about. I need to know that I have this presence in their life, but with my work colleagues, it's easier for me to be out of sight, out of mind. Don't bother me. I feel attacked if you are micromanaging me. Right. So we can, we can totally live in these different worlds. And I'm curious how you have seen 
attachment wounding show up in your practice in ways that we don't maybe typically see it, right? You see people that are like, oh, I'm having this very, um, I suppose, normal, I use normal in quotes, but I'm having this fight with my partner, right? And we can kind of deduce the attachment style there, but how are we seeing it show up maybe from the lens of trauma or different ways that you might not recognize is actually early attachment wounding. Mm, I love that. Um, The first thing that comes to mind is I think that a lot of times people don't recognize attachment when it's between them and their practitioner, like between them and the therapist or, you know, whoever they're working with. I think that a lot of times I notice attachment wounding coming up, like within the relationship between me and the client, you know, and like, I guess what a good example that I can think of is like, whenever I'm working with somebody and they get mad at me, you know, like Mm -hmm. I say something that they didn't love to hear, or they didn't agree with, and they get mad at me and they will want to like, kind of cut off, you know, like they won't want to come to session the next week, or they won't like, you know, they'll, they'll try to discontinue therapy of course, if they really want to do, then of course they're allowed to do that. But, you know, it's like not really recognizing like, Hey, so that attachment stuff that we're talking about is literally happening right now, like right now. And it's like, no, no, it's not. I hate you. Like, I don't want to talk to you again. Like you're mean or whatever. And it's like, no, no, like this is the opportunity. Like this is the moment to work through that attachment wounding, you know, like so often when we get you know, if we've felt offended in some way, you know, avoidantly attached people are probably going to be like, deuces, bye, like no explanation. I'm just out, you know? And I think a lot of times people don't recognize that that's an attachment thing, especially with, um, really, uh, consistent rhetoric that I feel like I'm seeing on like social media, like cutting out toxic people and getting rid of relationships that like just aren't healthy. And it's like, a disagreement though, doesn't equal something that's unhealthy or conflict doesn't equal toxicity. And, um, I think that that's, that, that to me kind of feels like one of the areas that I see it the most is like wanting to back out of relationship, thinking that they are avoiding toxicity and taking care of themselves when really they're just playing out like avoidant attachment. Yes. I think I've talked about this before on the show, but be it attachment style, my love language, my Enneagram number, right? These, I think that they provide really great frameworks and allow people to think critically or understand their patterns or zoom out and feel like there's not something wrong with them for the way that they interact in a certain situation. However, where it gets a little bit shadowy or a little bit dark is when people are like, nope, I'm just avoidantly attached and you have to deal with that, Mm. right? Instead Mm. of saying, right? Turning the onus in on them and saying, Ooh, why is this activating me? Right. Absolutely. What you just said, it's making me think of like, um, so in my relationship, I'm the avoidant one and my husband, bless him is the anxious one. And something that I've noticed, um, like over the years is that when I, um, like when we, when, you know, when I get triggered, when there's like conflict in the relationship, my go-to will be to like shut down internally, um, feel like, like sometimes I'll literally be like, look, I'm not ignoring you. I just literally don't even know what to say. Like words don't want to come at, like come up and out. Um, and from my experience, I did have a lot of years where I was like, look, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's not you. This is me. Like, I'm sorry. Like just just deal with it. Like, I promise I'll figure it out eventually. There's kind of this sense of like, I'm sorry, but like, what do you want me to do about it? You know? Um, and I realized that 
from his perspective, it's not like, oh, like my wife is just dealing with her own, her own trauma in this moment. Like it's okay. From his experience, I'm withholding love from him because I'm, I'm triggered. And in, you know, usually our triggers are going to have something to do with me trying to control something that he's doing, you know? So like for him, it's like, oh, I didn't do what you wanted me to do. So now you're withholding love. And that was such a big realization that like, yeah, like my truth, like it's also the truth that I'm experiencing like a trauma trigger, like that is showing up as like avoidance. And it's also true that my husband is having, having an experience of love being withheld from him. And when I realized that, that gave me so much more motivation and like empowerment to be like, okay, like this isn't, you know, the quote, like just how I am, like, this is something I need to take responsibility for to shift so that the, like, I can love myself more the people like, I can love the people around me in a way that feels better for everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was actually just talking about this today with, um, Lauren, my supervisor, you know, Lauren. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she calls it the dark side of the moon. Okay. (laughs) Um, and she kind of holds her hands. Nobody Uh can see me here, but in kind of this, like grasping at your fingertips, that yin yang kind Mm. of like with darkness comes lightness. Right. Um, and the, the kind of enmeshment of the two and that with, we all have this primal desire to attach, to connect. It is there, right. Whether it is because our blood relative and everything that runs through our veins or take it back to like hunter gatherer society, right. Connection was a way in which we survived, literally survived. Yeah. (laughs) That is a primal instinct that all of us have. Sure. There's some outliers and Mm -hmm. personality disorder or whatever, but in general, there was this primal desire to connect. Now, when you layer on some sort of attachment wounding that has led to anxious or avoidant attachment, that's kind of the dark side of the moon, if you will. Mm. Right. So I have this desire to connect and then I have it. The dark side of more anxious attachment is, Oh my God, what if it goes away? I need to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. The dark side of avoidant is, Oh my God, what if it goes away? I need to, I need to avoid that pain if it goes away. Mm-hmm. Or right? what happens if it gets too close? I need to back up if it gets too close. Yes. Yeah. And so that's that classic, you know, like you named at the beginning of the podcast, there's different language for all of it, but that starts to create the pursuer withdrawer dynamic mm-hmm. and relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for those of you listening that are like, oh my God, that's me. This is not a death sentence. Okay. You are sitting with two (laughs) therapists right now that very much identify as avoidantly attached humans. Okay. (laughs) So you can operate in this world and in relationship in a very healthy way, even if any of this is touching home for you. So with all of that being said, with attachment connection, right. Or this bid for connection from your partner, right. I'm going to bid and bid and bid and hope that Meredith bites. And with, when Meredith withdraws, 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 right. There is this huge dynamic that's happening. And so oftentimes right now I'm reading, hold me tight by Sue Johnson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For those of you that are not familiar with the work, Anything that Meredith and I are talking about right now, this book is based on attachment theory for couples and emotionally focused therapy. So get your hands on it if this feels true. Um, But 
oftentimes our bids for connection when they're coming up in conflict can feel like picking, right? I'm going to pick the fight or I'm going to pick the thing because any, this is the important part, guys, any response to a bid for attachment is better than no response. Right. So even if that bid for connection elicits anger, conflict, what people on TikTok might label as toxicity, Mm -hmm. that actually, to an extent, eases that anxious person's nervous system because they're saying, my attachment figure is showing up in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with all of that being said, and we can recognize the pattern, we can see that, you know, one person is more anxious, one person's more avoidant. How do we start to create a new pattern? Totally. So, okay. So I like to think of this also like outside of the particular dynamic of like partnership, like romantic partnership. You know, I think so many of the people I work with are struggling with so much of this, you know, the stuff that we're talking about, but they aren't necessarily in a romantic relationship, but you know, it's like, it's still showing up, but, but I think that, you know, the way that I work is mostly with, I'm like, I love internal family systems and parts work. So the way that I love to approach throwing a wrench in this dynamic is through like parts work. So, um, uh, using my husband and myself as, as further example, like what I have to recognize in myself is like, so I have the particular, uh, I don't know if you relate to this as well, Lindsay, but like my flavor of avoidant is like, I don't want you to get too close. Like I need you to back up and like, give me some space. Like when my husband, again, I've been with this man for 10 years. I love him. Like I'm not going anywhere, but like, even, <laughs> even still, like even knowing that, when he like romantically and lovey-dovey, like gets a little too close, if I'm like not in the right space, I will like, <sighs> like feel like I have to peel him off of me. And so what the work that I did around that was like identifying like, okay, first of all, what part is feeling that way? Like what wounded part of me is freaking out at the idea of being smothered? Because from a logical standpoint, I'm like, why do I care? Like, so part of me knows that this is safe and fine. Like this man has never given me any reason to not trust him, but that knowledge clearly isn't enough because it still feels like something bad will happen if he gets too close, you know? So identifying like, what, who are you? (laughs) Like, what part of me is that? Is that an inner child? Is that an inner teenager? Like, et cetera, et cetera. Like, who is that? Um, And once I can identify that enough, then I can kind of start working with that part around safety. So like, um, you know, identifying like, this is a safe man. Like, let's look at all of this evidence that we have that this is a safe man. Let's look at all the evidence that we have that like, I am safe in this relationship, that nothing bad will happen if I allow him into my bubble a little bit. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, essentially just like kind of identifying what that specific fear is and then like really working with that part. I mean, it sounds kind of odd, but like a way that I like to think of it is like, um, so like, let's say, let's just say this is an inner child wound. Um, I will work with this part very different than if I were to work with like my inner critic, right? So my inner critic, who's like, oh, you're a piece of shit. I'm like, thanks. Like, be quiet. I don't need to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Versus like, you know, if my inner child's like, oh, I'm so scared. Like I would think like, I'm not a mom, but I would think of that. Like if I was a mom and this was my child, how would I respond? I wouldn't be like, oh, oh my God, why am I always so scared every time my partner comes? Like that would be like the equivalent of being like, oh my God, what is wrong with you to like a child, you know? So I have to like, 
bring in compassion. Like how much sense does it make that I'm feeling scared right now? How much sense does it make that this doesn't feel safe? Like really helping that part understand, like, I understand you. I understand why you're feeling this way. I understand why you're responding this way. I understand why this is scary for you. And I'm going to teach you something new. So like a way that I think of it is like, um, we as children, you know, in early life experiences, like the outer world teaches us, our primary caregivers teach us how to be, our teachers at school teach us how to be. Um, and they are the ones that, you know, help to create who we are and what our beliefs are and how we operate in the world. Um, and if that belief is I'm not safe in a close relationship, you know, that might be one of them as an adult. So as a kid, all of those people were teaching it to me from the outside, but as an adult, it's now my job, like as the adult to teach my inner child, what the truth is. Cause you know how there's always that difference between like, like, okay, I know that this is fine or I know this is safe, but it doesn't feel like it. Like that split, you know, that can sometimes feel like the split between like the head and the body or the mind and the heart or something like being able to identify like who are these two parts. So like the part of me that knows it's okay, that's the part whose job it is to teach the part of me that doesn't know it's okay that it is like total, like it's, it's my own responsibility to do that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So beautiful segue into (laughs) taking responsibility. Yes. I have been stoned in the streets for telling people to take personal (laughs) responsibility. Yes, I get that. (laughs) And, and it's funny because you know what listeners don't know, both you and I worked in substance abuse treatment. Yes. Long time. And for a long time. Yeah. And responsibility is huge yeah. Yeah. in that community. Almost and too much so. <laughs> almost too much so. Yeah. Right. So we've seen toxic responsibility. If we want to throw that term around, yeah. I don't know if that's a thing yet. Um, and I have also been blamed of victim shaming. Yeah. If I yeah. tell somebody to take responsibility for a shitty situation. So how do we take responsibility for things that felt seemingly out of our control? Mm -hmm. How do we start to take responsibility for our part in something, even if it's not the catalyst of what made this traumatic experience happen? Mm -hmm. Let's start there. Okay, totally. So, okay. The way that you just said that, the like image that popped into mind for me is like, if I think of the like big, big, big picture. So I think a lot of something that keeps a lot of us, I think from taking responsibility is this idea of fault. Like if I'm taking responsibility, I'm admitting I'm wrong or I'm admitting I'm bad. And a lot of that's not on the surface, right? Like I think something, I hope I don't tangent too much on this, but as an example, like I see, or like a lot of people will talk about like narcissists and narcissism and like, you know, like they can never take responsibility because they just don't care. It's like, well, no, it's probably because if they were to actually take responsibility for something, the shame that they would feel would be so deep that they wanted to like die. So they're just trying to avoid that feeling, you know, they don't like, want a cute ego death on a Tuesday. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right. You know? So it's like, I think that the blame is a big thing that we don't, because in order to, I think a lot, I mean, this is very much wrapped up in attachment stuff, but I think for a lot of people to admit being wrong is to admit being bad. And other people don't see that. And I think they, like whoever has that experience also often doesn't see it. Um, they just experience defensiveness. You know, they don't necessarily understand what they're defending against. And usually it's like, I'm bad, you know? Um, so I think the first thing is like recognizing that like, there's no fault here. There's no blame here. This isn't about right or wrong. Like this is just a neutral, it is what it is kind of a thing. And 
I have an easy time looking at that when, and this is probably something that you're talking about with people stoning in the streets for, but like thinking about like, even in an abusive dynamic, it's like, we can talk all day about fault, but we're going to get lost in it because is it my fault or is it my abusive partner's fault? Okay. It's my abusive partner. Is it my abusive partner's fault or is it his upbringing? Oh, it was his upbringing. Okay. So is it his mom's fault or is it his dad's fault? And you know, you know what I mean? Like we could just go on and on and on and on and on. So it just seems like such a fruitless like endeavor to try to find that. So I just feel like fault doesn't matter. So I feel like that's a, like a great place to start. It's like, nobody's admitting that we're bad or wrong or anything like that when we're taking self-responsibility. I also think like you were saying, like understanding, like what's our part in the dynamic, you know, I think something that is, um, can be really hard. Like one of the hardest things that I have time with talking to clients about, especially clients that are like maybe a little newer that I don't have great rapport with is, um, when people have been, um, particularly women who have been victims of like sexual assault more than once when it, when something happens, like, you know, maybe three, four or five times in their life or something. Um, there's this book, um, I don't know if you're familiar called the gift of fear by Gavin De Becker. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's kind of interesting that a man wrote this book, but, um, it's, there's still a lot of good content in there despite what it's about, but he, you know, he talks about how like our, um, how do I say it? So like predators, like know what they're looking for. There's a specific type of personality, a specific type of behavior traits, a specific type of attachment that like predators are looking for, whether it's like conscious or unconscious, you know? So if I have really poor boundaries, for example, like if let's say I'm like really codependent or just like super enmeshed, like I get enmeshed with people really easily. Um, I'm way more likely to be the victim of abuse, you know, like e scary, like it. And like, that's the truth because if, I don't have- if we want to link it to the conversation we were just having, most abusers are very much anxiously attached humans yes. because <laughs> yes. that picking that we were talking about when picking doesn't work, power dynamic does. And it often becomes abusive because there's this desire to control the attachment within the relationship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And so I kind of liken it. I always tell people like, look, it's like, if you don't wear your seatbelt and get hit by a drunk driver, it's not your fault that you got in an accident. Like that's totally not your fault. Like somebody else hit you because they were being an idiot and an asshole and you weren't wearing your seatbelt. So had you been, you might not have gotten thrown out of the car you know? And so it's kind of this, it's like this both and kind of a thing. It's like, yes, you are not responsible for what happened to you, but if you don't look at how your, you know, I mean, within this conversation, like how your attachment style, how your behaviors, how your like, you know, enmeshment is impacting this, you're, you might continue to be a victim. Not like, well, this looks like, you know, that's your problem at all. You know, like if we don't see it, we need people to help us with that. But, um, being able to recognize that, like, yeah, I have a, I have a part in this. And that might, like, that might mean that I have to learn how to, to let people be mad at me and walk away. Or I have to learn how to let people have big, big reactions and like, not let it get to me to the point where I'm going to change my own behavior. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I could go on and on about it, but I think like, it's just important to understand that, like, um, we like, there's just, there's almost nothing in this world. That's a hundred percent zero, you know, like thinking kind of going back to like the, the addiction and recovery work, um, a big piece of work. in that is, um, like looking at where I've harmed people 
and like, what's my part, you know? And it's like so rare to, you know, like even when somebody has like harmed me, I can usually be like, okay, well, there's my like 10% at least of, of the situation. Like, or even if it's 1%, I'm like, okay, there was my 1% though, you know, but like, I can't think, you know, of course I can, I can think of examples, but it's very, very rare for there to be a situation where there's like a hundred percent responsibility on one person and zero percent another. I think an, an important caveat is like, I'm not talking about like children, like young children that are like being harmed outside of their control. Like, I think that's a very different experience, but like when we are adults, um, and you know, responsible in that way, that's more what I'm talking about. Totally. Well, yeah. at the end of the day, and I use this in relationships, I was actually talking to a client about this today. Okay. So you've dated four or five different guys and it ends the same way, or there are very mm-hmm. common characteristics within right. your relationship or whatever it may be. What has been the common denominator of all five of those relationships? So that's not to say that. Yeah. Okay. Me, ding, ding, yeah. ding. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah, exactly. And that is not to say that you deserved shitty behavior. That is not to say that you should take responsibility for this really crummy thing that that partner did. Mm -hmm. And that's what people hear. That's what people hear. What many of us are saying when we say that is, how can I take responsibility for continuously allowing this energy into my life? Exactly. 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 Completely. Completely. And I think what that that is a big thing about why it's so hard to take responsibility or one of the reasons why too, I think what you're saying is like, it can sound like, Oh, what? So therefore I deserve it. Fuck no, (laughs) absolutely not. You know, like it doesn't mean anything negative like that. It just means that if I want something to change, I'm gonna have to do something, something different, you know? Totally. And those big feelings, right. Either that defiant teenager that you're saying, so what I deserve it Mm -hmm. or that part of you that is like, wow, maybe I am really hard to love, right? You yeah. start to believe that, right. that narrative because it's been pushed on you. Mm-hmm. So when we go back to parts work, right? Identifying what part was that talking to? Right. Right. What right. part agrees with it? And what part is vehemently defending you in this moment? Mm-hmm. 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 In that, so we start to recognize patterns. We start to reparent on an individual inside job kind of level. Mm-hmm. How do we take that inside job and start changing the way that we're interacting in our relationships? So have you, um, have you read Jessica Fern's poly secure? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, yeah, for anybody who hasn't, it's written for, um, folks in non-monogamous relationships, but I think it's completely applicable to anybody. Like you don't even have to be in a relationship for this book to like be applicable to you. It is by far like the best breakdown of attachment, um, and, um, specific ways to heal attachment that I've ever read, like by, by far, by far. And Jessica Fern has a model that she calls hearts. Um, and which is an acronym. Um, and, and you can use this with your partner. You can use this with yourself, but the, 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 the first thing, so the H is like here and now, and essentially what that means is to try to get yourself grounded in the here and now. So if we're having an attachment trigger, like that in and of itself means that our body is in a past experience. Um, so being able to bring the body into the present. So like reminding ourselves like, okay, like I'm, 
I'm safe right now. Like I am, this person is not actively trying to harm me. And like, literally just like taking a moment with yourself to bring yourself back into the present moment. I think something that feels helpful for me to understand is that different parts tend to be kind of arrested in the development of like when a trauma happens. So when we're dealing with an inner child, we are dealing with a part of ourselves that did not really develop past childhood, you know? So like, um, bringing that part, like when I I've worked with people who, um, you know, their parts are so fragmented that they have like dissociative identity disorder. And when I've worked with children, like the child parts, they literally don't know it's 2022. Like they literally think it's 2006 and their abuser is still like next door or something, you know? So like helping like really catch up that time. And that's what's happening for us on our own subtle levels. So really catching up to like, no, 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 we are safe right now, which I could kind of go on and on about that because I think we could have a whole podcast on literally just that. Like, what does it mean to like be in kind of two different time periods and like bringing us back to the present? Um, For those of you listening that are not familiar with the term dissociative identity disorder, that is what we would in more layman's terms say like multiple personality disorder. So the way that you work with a personality is similar to the way that you would work with parts. Um, So this personality or this part that Meredith was pointing to is stuck in another decade even and doesn't know what is currently happening in this space in this time right now. So just for clarity of those that aren't in the DSM five as often as <laughs> Meredith and I right, are. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, if I'm having an argument with my partner, for example, and I'm in a trigger of like, I feel like one of the common ones is like, you don't care about me. Like if you cared about me, you would blank, you know, you would remember and, that I said this. Exactly. Exactly. So like that it, to me, like when I hear something like that, like, Oh, you like, if I'm working with a couple and I hear like, you don't even care. Like what I hear is like, Whoa, like, So when you were a kid, tell me who didn't care, you know, like, tell me how your experience of being loved was attached to like somebody showing you care in a certain way. Because if we look at this present moment, your husband or, you know, your partner not caring is definitely not what's happening right now. Like something's happening, but that's definitely not it. So like getting clear on like, okay, like what's, what's happening in this moment between me and my partner, you know, like, can I show up with me and my partner in this moment? Um, And then, um, she also talks about, um, expressed delight. So E is expressed delight. So like being able to show, I mean, delight might feel like a bit intense or strong or like a bit of a reach if you're like in the middle of a fight, you know what I mean? But like being able to just express like, look, like I'm glad that we're doing this and we're figuring this out in this moment. Like, I'm happy that we're like, like we are on the same team looking at the dynamic as, as our like enemy, as opposed to we are each other's enemy, you know? So like, how can I express like gratitude that we are trying to figure this out together? Right. We um, are the team. The enemy is the conflict. So can yeah. we address the, the conflict as a team from a, from a same, same point of perspective or goal? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then the A is attunement. So attunement, um, like being able to like, you know, like emotionally attuned to my partner, um, for me as an avoidant person, that's the hardest one for me to do, or one of the hardest ones for me to do is because I don't want to attune with you. I want to detach from you as much as I can in that moment. So it is, that's one of the harder ones to, that I have to do a lot of like self-talk with like, okay, this is safe. I'm allowed to connect with this person. Nothing bad will happen. Um, and, um, And then the R is rituals and routines. 
So creating some sort of ritual or routine with your partner, um, which, you know, oh my God, we could go on and on about that, whether that's like a weekly check-in or a nightly check-in or like, rather than waiting for when the attachments bomb goes off and we're like having a fight, like how can we preemptively like check in with each other in a, so like in a ritualized way, like not just like, not even necessarily like, oh, on Tuesdays at six, like which for the record would be great. Um, but even like being able to bring in more, like how can we ritualize this? You know, Mm -hmm. um, is, are there things that we need to let go of this week? Can we write them down and burn them, (laughs) you know, but like actually creating, um, putting like, uh, creating something tangible that we can use to like make our intention more potent, you know? Um, and then the T is turning towards, which as I say that out loud, that's definitely the hardest part for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but like thinking about how, um, I think for avoidant people, um, the, the go-to is to turn away, right? Like I need to get out of this situation. Like, I'm sure you've experienced this. I, you know, clients share this all the time about like, when we get in a fight, my partner just leaves, like he'll literally just leave or she'll literally get up and like drive away or leave the room or whatever. Um, which is, that's the turning away. So it's like, how can I lean into this? So like when we have conflict, we tend to lean out of the conflict. We try to avoid it. We try to like pretend it's not there or whatever. How can we lean into the conflict that we're having with each other? You know, how can I, um, you know, if my partner and I are having like a disagreement, how can I, rather than like letting that, like, you know, ah, 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 and just kind of like build and build and like, you know, ping pong off of each other into like this big escalation, um, which to me kind of feels like, backing further and further and further away from each other. It's like, how can I lean into this and be like, wow, this is like really difficult and annoying. And I don't know what to say. And I'm really mad at you, but I kind of wish that I wasn't. So what are we going to do about this? You know, just like, however begrudgingly we need to turn in and like turn towards and show up for it. Like, it doesn't have to be like smiles and, and like happiness or whatever. Like it can be frustrating and begrudgingly that we turn towards each other. But as long as we're doing that and if it doesn't feel safe or if it, you know, you need a minute, like just turn towards each other. Can you do it in 10 minutes? Can you like, rather than disappearing for the rest of the night, can you just disappear for 10 minutes and then try to come back? Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely big plug for this hearts model. Um, Jessica Fern's model. It has, I've sent this to like all of my clients and who've, and everyone that's like practiced this with a partner and with themselves. Right. So like, how can I be here and now with me? How can I express delight for myself? How can I be attuned with myself? Like all of this totally works with ourselves too. have like incredible results with being able to like improve their relationships. And of course that means their partner also has to be downward to to, to like engage with this as well. It's not gonna be a one-way street, but um, yeah, this model is, has been like incredible for me. So in those yeah. moments, cause I totally, I have my answer to this. I'm curious if our <laughs> answer would be the same. Um, I raise my hand first and foremost to say, I am a recovering avoidant, right? <laughs> like, and I used to always do like, I'm an only child. It's just mm. how I am. I do life better on my own. I'm hyper independent. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of me, a lot of my capital S self that really likes my independent part. So at no point in any of this are Meredith and I saying, you have to abandon ship on all the parts that you like about yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we're inviting in is that there's a different way to walk with them or to know when one of them is driving the bus, 
right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think like we, that's like actually one of the big things I think that I, I do when I'm working with people is like, like, oh, I hate this avoidant part. I'm like, great. Well, we ain't gonna, we're not going to get very far at all as long as we're hating this part, you know, like that, like, or thinking about like the inner critic, you know, that, that like everybody has an inner critic. Some of my clients like to call it the inner shit talker, but like that part that's always like, oh my God, you suck. You're like, Ooh, like you don't look that good today. You're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, whatever it is, like we have that, like, like that part, I, 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 it has, I mean, it's gotten way easier to deal with that part. I don't hear that part every day anymore. I don't believe that part when I do hear it anymore, you know, but like when those parts come in, I think like, I kind of joke with my clients a lot where like that part will come in and be like, Hey, you're a piece of shit. And we go, Oh my God, you're right. I am. And like, we believe it rather than being like, is if that part comes in as like, Hey, you're a piece of shit. Be like, um, agree to disagree. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> you know? So it's like the part's never going to completely and totally disappear. You know, like if there's a part of us that we hate, like, Oh, I hate that I'm so sensitive or I hate that, you know, I'm too trusting. Like that is, I mean, thinking again of like, if we're working with like a a child part or something, like it would be like, (laughs) if I was like, (laughs) okay, I'm going in a few different directions here. But like, if I had somebody outside of me being like, Meredith, you suck every single day, I wouldn't question why I was depressed. I'd be like, I have somebody outside of me that tells me I suck every single day. Like that, that's why I'm depressed, but we don't recognize that when we're telling ourselves these things every single day, like we are going to make ourselves feel like shit. So when these parts come in and are like, Hey, you know, you suck or whatever. Um, if we listen to that and believe it, we're going to, we're going to believe it. And we're going to feel it. So like when those parts come in, like you said, like we just have to learn how to not listen to it. But if the expectation or the hope is that I'm healed when it's gone, you're going to be really frustrated and you're going to feel like you're never getting better. And you're going to feel like nothing is changing. The goal is to learn how to set a boundary with that part, not to make it go away and definitely not to hate it. Definitely not to hate it. Just like anything else in life. Like we want to be setting loving, compassionate boundaries. Like how can I set a boundary and not listen to my critic, but also love it. How do I love my critic? You know, Totally. I say all the time, how energetically draining boundaries are. Yeah. And if I'm setting a boundary with someone, it's out of love. It is showing that person or in this context, that part, Mm -hmm. I want you in my life. I want you in my life so badly that I am giving you the roadmap as to how to best interact with me. Mm -hmm. And that is a constant reinstating of the boundary Mm -hmm. that takes a lot of work. So people who take a boundary was set with them as this person hates me. They never want to talk to me. Yada, yada. And perhaps that's the boundary, right? There is <laughs> there, that could be the boundary Yeah. or it could be an invitation, not a limitation mm-hmm. to, Hey, I'm teaching you how to best interact with me. Totally. And totally. if I didn't want you to interact with me, I would not take the time that it takes right. to consciously set this boundary with you. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And doing that same thing with our parts. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a part of me that really believes I'm a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe I inherited that thought or that belief in second grade when I wasn't picked for PE class. Mm -hmm. If second grade you externally, right, let's externalize Mm -hmm. this part. Mm -hmm. If second grade you came up 
and was like, you're a piece of shit. You're a piece of shit. Right. You're not going to drop kick some little exactly. kid and exactly. say, I hate it. Go away. Right. Right. You're going to be like, oh man, like who hurt you? Exactly. How can exactly. I love you? How can mm-hmm. I show up for you? Mm-hmm. So whether it's your inner critic or these parts of yourself that you don't particularly like, how has avoiding them gone for you so far? Have you, got, <laughs> right. have you gotten rid of them? Right, right. They tend to get louder <laughs> when you louder. do that. They tend to get louder when we ignore them. I mean, and this is like, this is what self-love is. Self-love means loving the part of ourselves that we wish didn't exist, which, you know, speaking of, you know, uh, relationships and stuff, you know, like kind of to your past question of like, how do we show up? um, with our inside work to change the dynamic in our relationship, like the dynamic in, in, uh, romantic relationships change drastically, the more you love yourself, you know, it's like the more I practice self-love, the more I'm able to like, like really, truly all the way down to my core access love for parts of me that I feel like ashamed of or angry towards, like, that's when I start to really know who I am, soften who I am, have less anxiety, have less fear in the world, less fear of judgment, judge others less, and like subsequently show up in my relationship as a much more whole person. And it like vastly improves the relationship. Yeah. One of the biggest things, and we, you know, you bring it up in the heart model, um, this kind of attunement or this leaning into your partner instead of turning away, um, that can feel really hard, especially as Meredith named, if you identify as more avoidant, right? It is easier or I perceive it to be easier Mm -hmm. if I run away Mm -hmm. right now, Mm -hmm. right? Revert back to my prior comment. How has that been working for you? Right. (laughs) And maybe let's introduce or, invite in another pattern or a new pattern. And something that has really helped me is I know when I feel avoidant in my body before I know what's happening in my head. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Those of you can't see us on, on video, but every time <laughs> Meredith and I talk about our avoidant tendencies, we actually lean back from the computer. We like there's constriction, right? There's this somatic response we have in our body. So whether or not you're consciously aware of it, there's probably something happening in your body way before it hits your brain to say, Oh, I'm running away. Oh, I'm doing that thing. I do again. So, and this takes practice. I'm not saying that this is something that you're going to get right every time, or even one time out of 10, but the more we've practiced it, the better we get at it. Um, I name it to my partner Mm. and it's not an attack. It is not to say, Hey, what you are doing right now makes me want to run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just own my experience. Hey, I feel a tightness in my stomach and every part of me is saying run right now. Mm-hmm. And you don't even have to understand why, right? We'll figure out know. the why after <laughs> we'll do that that's, later. <laughs> see, that's why we have therapists, right? Right, right, right. right. I'll let you know next week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if I can name it, if I can bring it into reality, instead of just letting it fester in my body, my partner has better tools to attune to me, mm-hmm. has the roadmap as to, oh, this thing is happening in my partner. Mm-hmm. And that can feel really vulnerable if you've never shared that with a partner before. Mm-hmm. More of that self-responsibility you're talking about. Totally. Can, and, and there's nothing, res- nothing wrong with the way that you're reacting. Right. But if we want to change from a reaction to a response, we have to realize what's coming up first. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like being in the body is one of the most fundamental ways to do that, which I will also name is usually one of the hardest things for people to do is to like be in our body. I think that feels like inherently unsafe for a lot of people, but being able to like, like the more in tune I've gotten with my body, the more I've sunk into my body and can recognize those things. Like I have been able to associate different parts um, you know, like my inner child, inner teenager, inner critic, whatever with my body, you know? So like, I know if I'm in my inner child, for example, because my stomach will really start hurting, or I know I'm in my teen. Cause I'll feel it more in like my fist, just like wanting to fight or something, you know, or like, like whatever it is, you know? So it's like, I can, ex- I can have a feeling in my body and go, Oh, I think this thing is being triggered. Yeah, exactly. Without even, like you said, without even in my brain consciously being like, what the frack? Like I can feel it in my body and yeah, be like, Oh, who's here? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? And like invite it in, you know? And that can feel a really scary the first time you do it with yourself, let alone to allow that to come up in relationship. So be it romantic partnership, a boss, a friend, right. As you begin to share your internal landscape with somebody that can feel like a really vulnerable thing to do. Mm -hmm. So if you are embarking on this journey of sharing that vulnerable part that you have yet to share where a, how do we decipher if somebody is worthy of that vulnerability? Ooh, let's start there. Okay. Yeah. 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 How do we know? So, okay. I'm going to put this super, super, super simple. Um, is, looking at just like actions versus words. Like, again, this is, it might almost even be too simplified, but I think something that like, you know, something I try to teach my clients a lot is like, a question that I get a lot is like, how do I not get into a codependent relationship again? How do I make sure that next time I see all of the red flags? Um, and something that I always tell them is like, well, you just keep believing what these people are telling you, despite the fact that they're showing you something completely fucking different. Like they're not showing up for you. They're being like, like weird and shady. They're not falling through with commitments, but they're telling you that they love you and that they're special and that you're beautiful. And you're soaking all of that up without looking at the behavior, you know? Yes. So- Esther Perel says, we don't meet people in a vacuum that like those first couple months of dating, right? Everyone's on their best behavior and they might be on their best behavior with you. Mm -hmm. But when you're in that two months of dating, how did they treat the waiter or waitress? How did they treat the homeless person on the street? How can you watch the way that their actions are in direct contradiction with their words? Mm -hmm. Exactly, 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 exactly. And I think to patients, I think that we, um, a lot of times, it may be more so non-avoidantly attached people. But I think a lot of times, like you said, because we're wired for connection, we want that connection. If especially if we haven't had it for a while, we want to jump into it. We want to find that person, whether that's a romantic partner or like a friendship, like we want to kind of dive into that kind of deep. And so when we first get that first hit of like, oh, this person sees me, this feels really good. We kind of just go full force into it. And I think it's like, especially the older that we get, it might take you six months of developing a relationship with somebody before you know that they are trustworthy of being vulnerable with, you know? Um, but again, if I just put it really simply, like look at the actions and the behaviors 
it's not the words. Like if somebody is showing you with their actions consistently over and over and over again, that they are a person of integrity, that they're following through with their word, then I would say that that's probably a good go. I think it's also important to understand that you will be vulnerable with somebody who ends up harming you. You will be vulnerable with somebody who ends up like maliciously harming you at sometimes, you know, not, not necessarily some big, bad, gnarly blow up way, but like, I think that often we can put ourselves out there, get hurt and be like, see, that's why I shouldn't do it. Or I picked the wrong person again. Like, well, maybe not. Maybe like, that's just life. And that happens sometimes that we choose to be vulnerable and we did it with the wrong person or we did it with the right person. And then it just didn't work, you know? Um, so like just recognizing the nuance in that, that like, there's not like some specific thing that we're going to hold out for. And once we find that thing, it's going to be completely and totally safe and we'll be vulnerable with no problems. Like there's always risk with vulnerability, you know, like even like within my marriage, that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned within like the first five years of my marriage. And I got married really young. I got married at 24. So like it, you know, and I, I met him at 21 even. So it was like, I did not have a lot of life experience, like long-term like relationship experience. I've been in some long-term relationships, but not, you know, anything like that. So that was one of the biggest lessons for me is like, you know, five, however many years into our marriage, we had like a huge disruption within our relationship. And the biggest lesson I think for me to understand was that like in a, in a, in like a good soulful way, the lesson there for me was that the person I love the most is going to hurt me. And that's okay. That's part of the relationship. That's part of why we're here together is to learn how to harm each other in quote productive ways or like harm each other in ways that we can grow through with each other. So again, that's kind of, it's a whole other thing that I won't go on about anymore, but just recognizing like patience, look for actions and know that like you probably will get hurt from being vulnerable and that's okay. And it teaches us that even though we got hurt or something stung, right? That that person was probably not acting with malicious intent. Totally, totally. totally. And we get to practice, boom, like there was the damage. We get to practice repairing that in vulnerability too. Exactly. Exactly. Which we need. Relationships don't grow if we don't have like rupture and repair, rupture and repair, rupture and repair, right? So absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Meredith, thank you so much for diving into attachment. I feel like very often I bring it up in conversation and people don't have the knowledge to dive into it as deeply as we did today. So if people want to continue to do attachment work with you, they want to follow along on your journey, all of the knowledge that you're putting out, how do people get a hold of you and follow that? Yeah. So my website is meredith-burger.com. Meredith Burger was taken and the person won't let me buy it. Um, <laughs> even though it was just parked. Um, so meredith-burger.com. Um, and then my TikTok is holistic.meredithburger. Beautiful. I will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.